hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Tessa Mansfield, Chief Creative Officer at Stylus. Today, we're talking about the super-rich. Who are they? Where are they? What do they want and how can luxury brands give it to them? To discuss the crazy world of high-net-worth consumers, I'm joined by Winston Chesterfield, founder of luxury consultancy Barton, and David Pinati, Stylus's own senior editor of product design. So first, Winston, we've focused this episode around high net worth individuals, but what do we mean by that? How rich are we talking? So um, net worth uh, relates to the assets that individuals hold, um, and high net worth is defined as having $1 million or more in assets. But there are about three tiers of high net worth. The first one is $1 to $5 million of net worth, which is all their assets. That's just the high net worth tier. The tier above that is 5 to 30 million US dollars, which is called very high net worth. And the tier after that is ultra high net worth, which is 30 million dollars or more, all the way up to Jeff Bezos at about 140 billion. Um, so there are three different tiers, and there's a very, very big difference, as you can imagine, between someone with one to five million dollars and someone like Jeff Bezos with 140 billion dollars. The difference is gargantuan. And so when we talk about the super rich, I think we really should define it by talking about the ultra high net worth individuals, which is 30 million dollars plus. And there's around 265,900 of those people around the world, um, which is about they actually represent one percent of the high net worth population. So the individuals with $1 million or more, there's around 22.8 million of those in the world, which is about 0.3% of the world's population. And so the top 1% of that is the ultra high net worth. So when people use figures like the 1% um, in lots of their literature, it's actually a far smaller percentage than that. It's the 1% of the 0.3% that we're talking about. Choice individuals. <laughs> and globally, where, where are these super rich concentrated? Are, are there like particular regions uh, on the rise as well? Like, you know, are there more in Asia or in the US? Or Well, they're, they're the largest um, population of ultra net worth individuals is in North America, which is very dominated by the United States. Obviously, the other candidate there is Canada. They have a large population, but it's smaller than the UK, so it's not actually that big. Um, but the US is, and, and North America is overall the biggest region of ultra-wealthy individuals, has 91,000 individuals in North America. Um, Asia-Pacific is actually the second largest, and this is actually a recent phenomenon. Uh, before that, it was Europe that was the, lar- the second largest after North America. But now Asia has just overtaken Europe. It's 75,000 individuals, roughly, are ultra-wealthy in Asia, the Asia region. And in Europe, it's about 74,000. So it's a very, very small difference. Um, but the, the trend is that Asia has been growing very, very fast and very strongly, um, Europe is, has been the laggard of all of those top three regions, um, and North America is consistently strong um, in terms of its growth, in terms of its population size, and also the total wealth they hold. And one of the reasons for this is because the entrepreneurial environment in the United States of America and North America generally is it's far um, more, it's far less hostile to ultra wealth and super wealth uh, than many countries are in Europe, for example. Europe has lots of different types of um, political regimes, yes, um, but it tends towards the kind of sort of slightly more left-leaning model in lots of countries. Um, and that sort of impacts upon the ability to sort of just set up businesses, the attitude towards populists, towards great wealth, etc. Um, and China has basically followed the US model and actually has a huge uh, entrepreneurship that's 
very, very much apes the American model. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, me. I mean, what differences do you see between these regions in terms of the needs and behaviours of, of, of these consumers? I think it's really difficult to generalise by region in terms of their needs and behaviours because uh, take, for example, Asia, when uh, lots of brands do this, and I think it's a really big um, problem, is they tend to generalise by region. They'll say, well, what are Asian ultra high net worths want. Asia is a massive region and very diverse. You have, uh, take for example, Japan. Japan for a long time was the only really ultra wealthy country in the Asia region. Um, and because it hasn't been growing very much, it's been stagnating. No one's really been concentrating. They've been concentrating on China. Um, but before they used to define Asian consumers by Japan. Now that China's been growing, they're defining Asian consumers by China. You can't really define the region by one country or another. They're very, very diverse. Um, I would say that there are some generalities in terms of the way in which they might uh, look at what wealth is for. So, for example, in Asia, there is a very, very strong cultural need for wealth to be about preserving family and helping family. And that's not just children and helping them get educations and have houses and things. It's also for parents, looking after the parents. There's a very strong cultural norm in Asia that you you don't just make lots of money um, and then go off on your own way, you make sure your parents are taken care of. So there's this multi-generational thing. In America, North America has very much a strong standpoint of wealth is about a way of creating something, but it's also that way of giving back. There's a very strong philanthropic culture and ultra-wealth in America. And Europe, um, it's much more about uh, sort of an insurance policy. Um, it's because they're not sure what's going to happen. Um, it's, it's really about... Uh, uh, kind of a castle drawbridge set up in a way. That's what the way wealth is perceived amongst ultra-wealthy in Europe. It's a way to keep them themselves to themselves. Privacy is very, very strong. Um, and it's partly because ultra-wealth, it's slightly more hostility towards ultra-wealth and the creation of ultra-wealth in Europe than there is in North America and in, and in Asia. And can I add something to that? Because um, doing some research, what I think is really interesting, what makes China really interesting for brands is the fact that luxury consumers are young with over a quarter of ultra high net worths under the age of 50, compared to the global average of just 13%. And when we look beyond ultra high net worth, the influence of younger consumers even more evidence as there are, um, I have the number here, 10.2 million millennial luxury consumers in China who accounted for more than half of the total spending on luxury in the region in 2018. So this is a super connected entrepreneurial consumer, which I think makes it really an interesting challenge for brands how to serve them. And then Chinese women um, are also, China drives the trend of super rich self-made women. So out of the 184 self-made female billionaires in the world, 78% are from China. And Chinese women are driven to work in high-powered jobs and they push demand for luxury cars and fashion. So I think that's also really interesting target groups for brands. Um, I, com I completely agree. And I think that the one of the things that people uh, are kind of slow, not slow to acknowledge but haven't fully acknowledged yet is the fact that China is pretty exceptional as a story mm -hmm. um, and that all these brands are often looking for the next China and it doesn't, that doesn't exist. Uh, China is basically a perfect storm of lots of different... Um, circumstances. Take, for example, the political regime, very top-down political regime. You have that alongside rampant capitalism, which they've encouraged. You have that alongside a cultural vacuum, where basically people didn't inherit any sort of cultural um, expectations from the previous generation because you had the period of communism. 
Then you had this lack of entitlement in the population and the workforce was very hardworking, very intelligent, very resourceful. Combine all those things together, that's why you have China. That's, that's China. You, don't, you won't get that in another country very, very easily. Um, and so I think that what you're saying about, you know, the, these, these people are a great opportunity for brands. They still represent, I think, outside of traditional, you know, Western wealth markets, China represents the strongest opportunity for luxury brands in the world. I think that other regions are going to be very slow to grow. I think, just for example, there are more people, more ultra-wealthy people living in San Francisco than the entire continent of Africa. So as a region, yes, Africa will grow eventually, but it, it, it's very, very small. We need, we need to understand that the rest of the world, outside those regions of Europe, North America and Asia, the ultra-wealthy populations, uh, population wealthy generally, outside of those regions is very, very, very small. And it sounds like there's going to be quite different values to the different sets of ultra high net worth depending on where they are. But what do you think constitutes luxury for this group? And what kind of values do they want to embody and reflect if you're thinking about, um, you know, what they're going to be buying? Is it going to be um, objects? What kind of brands are they buying into? And, and, you know, how do they want to reflect their own being? Yeah, I think luxury a lot of the time depends very much on perspective. Um, and not just how much wealth you have, um, but also how long you've had it or how long you've been exposed to it. Um, and I think that this is for the simple reason that when you have wealth, it, it affects your attitude towards what you need and what you don't need. Um, and I think that very established ultra-wealthy people don't necessarily feel the need to use the term very luxury very much. They don't really like using it, um, in my experience. They tend to just buy things and acquire things or go on holidays and do things but they don't tip you know identify necessarily with the luxury mindset Mm -hmm. the less established ultra wealthy do that's and they've often identified with luxury and what luxury brings before they've become wealthy because that's why a lot of the time they've become wealthy is because they want to buy luxury things so a great example is you often see that an individual whose family have never had a Bentley has an aspiration to have a Bentley and they make wealth, they get a Bentley and they've got a Bentley and they've achieved it. A person whose family have always had a Bentley, they've always you know, been in a car and a Bentley, they never really have an ambition to have a Bentley. So I think that these things are very, very led by experience. They're led by, we're human beings at the end of the day, and they're led by what you're exposed to, what you're used to. Um, and I think, so we have to remember that as a lens on this in that, a lot of the time when we have a new region of wealth, you'll see a very acquisitive nature and a very acquisitive side to them. And what I think is a little bit unfair, a little bit incorrect, is to say that that's because they are of that culture or of that country. That's what they're always going to do. It's not really that. It's their nascent connection with wealth. It's their nascent connection with luxury. And that's what that's referencing. And so I think what they see in terms of luxury is initially very, very different where I think that sort of it tends to fork off is people see the values of what is external and what is internal in terms of what luxury is bringing them. And the very wealthy are much quicker to this because they can acquire lots of things very, very quickly. They can buy their children lots of nice things, houses, clothes, cars, jewellery, and it's a lot quicker to get to those levels um, that it is someone who is merely worth hundreds of thousands or even a million to five million. Someone worth a hundred million can buy lots and lots of things. And they realize after a while a lot of this stuff doesn't actually give them very much. 
Um, and so they get quickly into this idea of what what can I do that's valuable with my wealth? What can I do that's actually instructive? Um, what can I do that's uh, that benefits you know me in in different ways? Gives me better experiences, brings me knowledge, um, gives me excitement. And I think that that's where the ultra wealthy get quicker into these stages of going into, for example, experiential luxury, um, because experiential luxury is kind of the sort of the finishing ground for luxury. It's 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 where everyone's getting towards over time. It's You've the had true aspiration the, beyond beyond the Bentley. <laughs> the true aspiration beyond the Bentley. It's it's because I think over time, you know, you had look at the Gilded Age. You had Americans who got very very wealthy very quickly. They were very coarse in terms of their manners and attitude. They came across to Europe with their great big yachts. They lived, they stayed in the big hotels. And over time, all those families and all that, all the American culture has actually moved much more towards experience and travel and holidays. And I think that that's that's just an example of the natural graduation that you have in luxury. That's not to say people don't buy nice things, buy cashmere jumpers and buy um, nice shoes or watches, but it's it's they value those things less as achievements in luxury. And, and I think that experiences are so valuable because they vanish. Um, and they're so luxurious because they vanish. They're not there all the time. And you get this sense of a privilege of having had the wealth, having had the wherewithal, and the ability to be there in that place and time. Um, and I think that really lies at the heart of, of what luxury ends up being for these people is, I was lucky to be there, I was lucky to have had that, I was lucky to have enjoyed it with these people. Um, because the other things end up just being, as they become, like with Rolex watches, just investments, things that you buy that retain their value that you put in a wardrobe and you look at them after a while and think why on earth was I so obsessed with that it's nice that you mention the the sort of gratitude side of privilege as well the fact that there's that that essence of like I'm lucky to have this which is I don't know a nice thought Davey at Stylist we've written a lot about the effectiveness of experiences and activations in the luxury sector what are you seeing in terms of design innovation in this area um well it's interesting actually because it's this um this kind of pre- preference for doing and experiencing rather than having. And um, that means that the appeal of a bespoke process is not surprising. And this also really uh, fits with a more considerate way of consuming. So instead of just ordering things in a different color, I think the bespoke process will become much more collaborative. So where designers and clients really work closely together. Um, so consumers get a look behind the scenes and learn, but also get to hone their own personal creativity. So again, tapping into self-improvement and how that's uh, part of that experiential luxury. Um, and another way of how the desire for experiences is influencing design is the rise of multisensorial design. So how a product or its packaging can tap into multiple senses to really create something that's memorable and immersive. And I think here this... It's also going to be about collaboration of commerce and art coming together to create immersive environments and create something really enticing. The wealthy, one of the things they prize the most um, in the world is knowledge. It's intelligence, it's insight, because it's one thing they can never really have enough of apart from time. They never have enough knowledge, never have enough intelligence to do the things they want to do to get ahead. It's not just about business ambition, it's about life ambition. Uh, It's about... um, can I invest in a, uh, in a better business? Can I donate to a better charity? Um, can I make a bigger difference? Can I maybe have a better feeling inside me from one day to the next? So I think that 
when they give experiences that give something back, mm -hmm. I think that's very important. I think if a brand was going to do something properly, it's not just about setting out your wares and trying to sell something. It's about, you think about it. What do they prize? What do they value? They value knowledge. If you can give them knowledge time after time, they'll keep coming back. They'll value you as an organization. They'll see you're not just a salesman. Um, and they will eventually warm to you as a brand. And so it's much more of a storytelling um, arc than it is about you simply put something in front of them, drizzle some magic buy, on, yeah. blow some dust in their face, and then they'll buy it. That doesn't really work with this type of consumer. So do you think that brands also have a responsibility to provide kind of opportunities around uh, philanthropy as well? Or do you think uh, these consumers will do that themselves? Um, I think it's good that... I do think it's good that brands have ethics and values. I think that's becoming extremely important to this consumer. Um, and I actually honestly think that they don't... This group doesn't get probably enough credit. And I have <laughs> my hand up and they're saying this. They actually do push forward um, ethics in brands and sustainability in brands. They have been the driving force in this um, because uh, they are very, very interested in how things can be done better. That's what they've, a lot of them built their businesses on and that's why they've been successful is because they've done something that not, not someone else didn't do that was better, that made, it made people's lives easier, made them cheaper or whatever. And they are always very interested in things that, oh, well, here's a problem, let's try and fix the problem. So they have always been uh, champions of businesses that do things ahead of other businesses. And they've, to be fair, they've had greater choice in that respect. They're able to buy things that are a much higher price and lots of businesses that are very early into the, you know, things like ethics and treating people well. Uh, Brunello Cucinelli is a great example of pays people above the average wage, uh, donates money to the certain causes, etc. And people go, wow, it's a great ethical brand. It's very expensive. So very wealthy people love it because it's very ethical, but it's, it's also a beautiful brand as well. It's very expensive, but most people can't afford Cucinelli. It's far more difficult for mass brands who have this precarious business model of making lots and lots of things very cheaply to sell to lots and lots of people. You can't change that overnight. So for luxury smaller brands, it's far easier to adapt to what the consumers are demanding, which is, guys, this is a serious problem. We need to impact this some way. I want you to become more ethical. I want you to become more sustainable. Why are you acting this way? For example, if they went traveling and a hotel was still handing out, this is an actual story, mm -hmm. a hotel was handing out plastic bottles on the beach. This person went up to the manager of the hotel said they were going to be in contact with the managing director of the hotel group to tell them he thought it was disgraceful they were still handing out plastic bottles on a beach that were just going to wind up probably washed out to shore one day on the beach itself again at some point. They feel they're in a position of responsibility and power to actually make change and do things, and they feel that they have the knowledge to be able to make these statements. Um, and some of that is overconfidence, but some of it is definitely, you know, they've received intelligence. They feel they can give someone a bit of advice. Um, and they do that because they, they feel successful. They feel like, I've, I've, I've made a success my, myself, so why can't I advise someone else in doing this? And they have a, they have a desire for that. Um, so I think that that side of it is very important. Um, and I think that they have, they do deserve some credit, at least, for pushing forward that agenda. Yeah. And I think it's interesting how this attitude is really already changing the luxury industry and you know brands are stepping up and responding so we've seen in fashion in the last maybe year and a half that houses like Prada and Gucci and Burberry have now banned the use of fur in their collections and Chanel even extended that by banning the use of exotic skins like crocodile and snake and lizard um, so that means that now leather alternatives are entering the luxury realm and we've seen some exciting 
examples in furniture and cars, which of course was usually all about luxury leather. And Casina launched a collection of sofas designed by Philip Stark, made from apple leather upholstery. Um, Audi has launched a concept car with uh, an interior that's completely vegan and incorporates yarn uh, from upcycled fishing nets. And I think this is really exciting because hopefully these luxury brands have the budgets to create these innovative processes and create these upcycled materials, giving them a premium a premium appearance. Um, and that also makes them exceptionally like perfect for the luxury market because they exhibit an individual point of view, uh, they offer a potential talking point. So I think this is where the luxury consumer, the rich consumer, can really push this forward, actually. Yeah, lots of high net worths who are very sort of change-making and, and conscious in the way that they consume things. Um, they, they also might be looking more, for more sort of disruptive, um, I, I guess, methods of, of, of experience and stuff. Um, one of the trends we've seen emerging in, uh, in luxury experiential marketing is um, an engineered kind of exclusivity. I mean, obviously, there's an the, the world of exclusivity and leanness is here. But, um, for example, uh, we recently reported on the Adidas party at Coachella where people had to hand over their phones um, before they could go in. So it was a way of kind of switching off and taking part and being really immersed in the experience, in this very intimate experience. Do you think this this need to be in the moment, you, you said those kind of fleeting kind of... Uh, elements of, yeah, of experience yeah, yeah. the vanishing uh, is becoming this kind of luxury imperative and do you think you know switching off turning off technology being off grid any of those kind of aspects um i think so i think it does go back to the idea of vanishing luxury um i think that that the concept of experiences is actually far more indulgent than buying something that has an enduring value um because you're actually just spending it on a moment that passes and then it's gone and then all you have is the memories and maybe if you don't even have your phone there's no photos um so it literally is just the memories of it um and certainly i hope you weren't very high or drunk at the time and then you might not even have those um but it it feels like more of an extravagance because you're spending that on something spectacular so it, it definitely makes more of an impact upon their sort of this this they have this sort of thing inside them where it feels like it's a, it, when they're spending, does it make this sort of impact on, oh, gosh, this is a huge acquisition, this is a huge purchase. We do that most of the time. Normal people do that most of the time on lots of luxury things. But the wealthy really only ever impacts on when they're buying a jet or <laughs> buying a yacht or something very, very large or a property. When they're buying ordinary things, it's buying that's like buying something in a sweet shop um, for them. Um, I think that when it, ma- it makes an impact and they're spending a huge amount of money on experience, it can make that sort of very, very sort of fundamental feeling inside them that, that wow, they're, they're really investing in something that's going to bring them a great experience. Um, I think the switching off is probably important from a privacy perspective. I think it's the fact that, you know, take for example the fact that lots of members clubs like Annabelle's and Soho House, etc., they're all discouraging photos. Um, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that the membership don't want the risk of when they're letting their hair down amongst all these like-minded people that someone's going to be taking a picture in the background, they're going to be pictured and they are, happen to be a CEO of an organisation or a chairman and they're pictured looking rather awkward or out of kilter for the evening, letting their hair down. Um, a lot of this is about I want to have this safe space where I can enjoy myself. So I think that element of it, taking those things away from, from other people and taking things away from even themselves, means that they can enjoy themselves in, in that regard. I think that the downtime, I think it's a difficult thing with this downtime, is because, um, yes, they do crave it. Yes, they do want it, particularly when they were with family members. They do want to have this time w- without contact and without phones and separate from the rest of the world. 
But these people tend to be extremely busy. Um, they have to contact their accountants and lawyers almost daily. They have to speak to their business partners regularly as well. Um, they have to speak to assistants, I'd say, hourly sometimes in, in some cases. So I think that the ability to be off is very, very challenging for them. Um, it can be done for short periods of time, but generally speaking, it's very, very rare that they do it. So I'd say that it's probably more relating to the privacy element of this, that for maybe for a few hours, yes, you can go and have a great time. But for you know long trips, there's no chance on earth. You're never going to get this situation, for example, if you did a, an ethical resort that didn't have Wi-Fi. You wouldn't get any ultra-wealthy going there because they just they, there's no way they're going to survive that. It just wouldn't happen. Um, so I'd say it's more sort of this momentary aspect of privacy and enjoying themselves and feeling safe is, is more important. Makes sense. Um, and where do they go to get their information? So they're constantly connected. But like from a marketing perspective, if they're looking for inspiration or information on, on what to do next or, you know, what, what experience to take on or where to go, or what to buy, or where, where do you think luxury brands can effectively engage them um, and what kind of channels? It's very difficult um, because uh, tradi the traditional channels, they, they do use traditional channels, for example. Like they'll read newspapers. Um, they will read ma you know, editorial magazines, things like that. Um, they will go onto the internet. The problem is, where do they go and, and how can you track them? Because there's only, remember, there's 265,000 of these people. So it's very, very <laughs> difficult. I mean, I know magazines like FT claim to have a very, very high net worth readership and they obviously get lots and lots of money for their adverts, adverts and their how to spend it pages. And that is definitely a qualified clientele. But, you know, how many of those are actually ultra wealthy? It's very, very small. Uh, I'd say that the majority of the time, their ideas come from their own social groups. They have um, lots of people who know um, what they want, and they'll, they'll be friends with a huge range of people, uh, not in terms of wealth levels, but lots of different people around the world. They'll have these people at the end of the phone or at the end of a WhatsApp message, and they'll ask them, what's the newest place you'd recommend to go to? Where did you go last year? And there's because they're... they're socialising with lots of other very wealthy people, it's very easy to find someone who's already experimented and found something that's great and fantastic, particularly in terms comes to things like travel and experiences. But I also think they they do use social media. And I would I'll point out one particular social media in this, which is Instagram. And it, it's it's a it's a very, very common thing that's known that they actually they they do this in kind of a sort of a, a covert mode. So they won't really post very much. They'll be obviously a private user so no one can really access them and no one can see what they're doing. Um, but they will follow lots of brands and follow lots of other people to see what they're doing and where they're going. Um, and they'll use these as ideas um, and they'll they'll think about them. They'll screenshot things if they're closed and they'll give them to their personal stylist and say, hey, I want you to go and get this. Instagram's their Pinterest. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is, yeah. And, it, it, and it's because it's... And the more and more people use it, the better it becomes as a resource because it becomes richer and richer and richer. Um, I, I'd say that the other elements that are far more difficult for brands to get into, but there are ways to do it. Are uh, they? They're definitely influenced by events and pop-ups. So where they places where you know they go to frequent in the summertime or in the winter times, so they might go to Saint Moritz, they might go to uh, Verbier, they might go to the south of France, uh, Sardinia in the summertime. Um, they are definitely influenced by things that just appear there out of nowhere. There might be a pop-up restaurant with a few cars outside. What, what brand is this? Who is this? What's this about? Um, and because it's a, it's different, it's new, it's a novelty. So why, why, why don't I go and find it out? We've been to that other restaurant 15 times in the last two years, so why can't we try something new? Um, there's a value to that. 
um, and and they like the novelty of it, and 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 it also enables them to find things out. And if you can provide knowledge and novelty at the same time, you'll very much attract them. Um, and the other the other aspects they use, they'll use uh, personal concierge, so people who are paid literally to go and find the latest thing, or the best brands, or the best place to stay, or the best uh, car to buy, um, and also. Th- their sort of their personal assistants as well do play a role in getting them things and sourcing them things but i'd say in terms of ending up with things that they want they tend to want to find these things out for themselves if not they ask their peer group um but their their claim to actually have come up with this idea themselves <laughs> is very thin it's normally a combination of social media the internet something maybe they read read somewhere before um someone advising them um, or it's actually they've been to an event in the south of France or in, in Verbier and they've seen something like a, a car or, or a watch or something, and they've been and and they but they wanted to to show it's their idea. So I think those are probably the best routes um, for this group. The, the best thing a brand can do also is is flatter them to make them feel like it was all their idea in the first place. You never never want to have the idea that you've sold anything to these people. You want to feel that they've bought from you. That's the feeling that they need to go away from 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 the sale is is that they've bought, not you that you've had to sell. In all your years of researching what the super rich really want, what's the most absurd extravagance that you've ever come across, or the most absurd kind of well, experience? Yeah, I I think that really in that, because I've been focusing on this area, there's actually not that much that's absurd um, in terms of individual things. So even the grander super yachts and big Boeing and Airbus business jets, I, I start to see like a, there's a reason for them. They're, they're practical in some ways, which sounds a bit bizarre. But when you start to study this area, you really can see that it makes sense. But I think there's an individual I, uh, person, I think, that where whose extravagance and absurdity in terms of the lifestyle they cultivated was probably a, is is the best example and the best warning uh, for what wealth can do um, and what excessive spending can do, and actually puts it actually puts puts you off wealth, puts you off the idea of it. Um, but it's the case of Prince Geoffrey, who is the brother of the Sultan of Brunei, um, and it was just a case of pure, unadulterated excess, needless acquisition, um, relentlessness. And I think at the end he had taken the money illegally, basically from uh, this sovereign um, oil. Uh, fund basically that the, the, the revenue that come, comes basically from Brunei selling oil, um, and in the end, when he had to hand back assets, he had to hand back um, six hundred properties, over two thousand cars, over a hundred paintings, um, five super yachts, um, and nine aircraft, and uh, there were about twenty-one warehouses that were full also of billions of dollars worth. Of assets, and one of these was that really um, symbolizes the sort of the vulgarity of, of this consumption. Was a life-sized statue of himself in solid gold, carrying a polo stick, um, and it's it, this kind. It's what I think is really it's a very Babylonian excess of what he did. Um, is actually a real, it's a put-off to anyone. Even people who you consider to be brash and tasteless in terms of their wealth would look at this and it really puts you off the idea of consumption. It, it makes you feel that you should be a lot more conscious in your own consumption. Um, so it's always a good idea, I think, to bring up the story of, of Prince Jeffrey, who uh, ends up having to give off a lot of this stuff back. Um, but of of just the fact that limitless wealth can corrupt um, and 
that but most people these days um, don't consume in this way. Uh, there is this is almost like the consumption of a of a medieval king. You know, it's it's not really something that contemporary people understand or or can get their heads around. But I think these these are very very good. Um, examples to bring up because it does make people feel that they should be a lot more careful about what they buy what and what they buy and how that impacts upon the world and, and, and what the world is. Um, because I think there's many other things you can do with money rather than fill 21 warehouses full of <laughs> things made out of solid gold. I think we can all think of a few things we'd <laughs> prefer to do. <laughs> wow. Well, we'll all take a lesson from Prince Jeffrey. <laughs> But I think generally you've painted a pretty positive picture of this kind of new era of change-making ultra-high net worth consumers. So I'd like to thank my guests, Winston Chesterfield and Davy Pinati, for a fascinating conversation about the super-rich. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available. 